Every day, CT testifies to the reality that Jesus is alive, transforming his world and bringing his kingdom to bear. Jesus transforms, CT equips. Make a gift to our nonprofit ministry with a gift of $20 to provide 150 more people with redemptive storytelling, global perspective, and thoughtful podcasts. Give now at morect.com equip. This is Russell Moore, and you're listening to The Russell Moore Show, brought to you by Christianity Today. Every week, we explore here conversations and questions from a Christian perspective to help you sort out how to live as a follower of Jesus in confusing times. This week, we have a conversation to seek to do just that. All right. Well, it's really fun because this episode of The Russell Moore Show Russell and I have kind of switched spots, and I'm Ashley Hales, the producer of The Russell Moore Show, and we are going to talk about Russell's reading habits, as well as the best books of 2022. Russell, you had so many beautiful books that you wrote about in your last newsletter, and you've gotten a lot of fan mail and a lot of questions about those best books and podcasts of 2022. So I'm excited to dive into the topic of reading. Well, yeah, I am too. We've had a lot of questions in your questions at russellmore.com about your reading practices, including the question about, do you ever sleep? Because people see <laughs> your desert island playlists and your reading lists and they change every time you send out a newsletter. So the question is, what does your reading habits look like that also allow you to sleep? <laughs> I think what uh, some people think is that the what I'm reading or what I'm listening to is a checklist. Right. Meaning, yeah. okay, these are all the things that I have uh, completed reading this week. And that's not the way I read. So it tells you what I'm reading at the moment. And there are a lot of times when if I'm not clicking with a book, mm -hmm. um, I don't continue to read it. Let's think about, just tell us a little bit about what does your reading habits look like in terms of a day? So for instance, I'll spend my kind of early morning hours doing the hard sorts of reading because that's when I'm freshest. So things like commentaries or history or cultural analysis, I need my brain to be working. But at the evening time, at bedtime, I'm always going to bed with a novel. So what does your kind of reading practices look like throughout the day? I really don't have a disciplined set of uh, reading practices. I read what I want to, when I want I to. I love it. Just <laughs> Unless, follow the, the desire. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there, there are times when I uh, am reading something because uh, I have to get it read for uh, maybe an interview or I'm teaching something or I have to, to endorse uh, a book right. or blurb it out. You know, I'll give myself sort of time frames for that. But generally, I just read what I want to when I want to. And if it does divide itself up, it's subconscious. Right, <laughs> so right, right. I don't, I don't recognize it or see it. Oh, I love it. It's good to hear because I think, you know, you look at some of the books you've read and there are all these university presses and it can feel like, oh, Russell Moore's reading is so like, above and beyond the average person. Maybe that's what folks are thinking about. But I think it's just encouraging yeah. to hear you say, hey, 
there are certain things that call your attention, whether it's a topic. And there are certain things that are part of the requirement of your work. And that's like all of us. There are some things that I read and what I recognize about it is this is not a bad book, but it's not for me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and so there are some things that I think I, I can see how somebody who would be really energized by whatever uh, it is. I mean, for instance, mm-hmm. on the list of the top 12 books, I included a book that I never would have picked up except for this uh, personal connection. It's a book by a pediatric neurosurgeon. I'm usually not interested in neurosurgery or I know nothing (laughs) about it. I'm not really interested in it. But because uh, I had been, when I started off as an intern uh, in Congress for Congressman Gene Taylor Mm -hmm. back when I was 18. Uh, one of my fellow interns, uh, Melissa, married uh, the author of this book. And so I knew about it, picked it up. And as I was reading it, I thought, I'm so glad I read this because it's not something I ordered. I would have just passed over it if I had seen it in the Amazon recommendations or on the shelf of a bookstore. How have you been welcomed into a wider range of reading maybe than you would have um, originally considered? Is it like, you know, reading the bibliographies or, you know, the personal recommendations? What's helped open up your own reading life? I don't know. Uh, that, that, <laughs> that's okay. That's, that's okay. That's, that, that's one of the things I don't know. What, what I would say is, I think what was really helpful for me mm-hmm. was that I didn't have parents who mm-hmm. were telling me what I should read. Mm -hmm. So I was reading what I wanted to, and I found that I didn't do well with assigned reading. Mm -hmm. So I might very well read King Lear, but not if it was, not if we were doing a class on King Lear. (laughs) And so that that probably Mm -hmm. says some bad things about me, (laughs) but, but that's the case. It was, and it it always has been the case. Mm -hmm. It's just really, I have to kind of have a connection with something that I'm reading and it has to be natural and organic. Yeah, no, me too. And that's one reason why I really miss physical uh, bookstores Mm -hmm. being as prevalent Mm -hmm. as they once were, because that's that's what they're designed to do Mm -hmm. is to sort of introduce you to those books that you just kind of happen upon. Yeah. The serendipity of that moment. Yeah. It really is. My wife and kids and I were uh, driving home to my hometown, Biloxi, Mississippi, last week, and we always uh, take an extra couple hours, I think, to the trip to go through Oxford, uh, Mississippi, Mm -hmm. uh, because one of my favorite bookstores, Square Books, is there. And it's inevitably, you're going to come across things that you say, oh, I didn't even know this was was out or that this existed. So I think we've lost something with losing that. We've gained a lot with having algorithms Mm -hmm. uh, to help us, but we've lost a lot. Yeah. It sounds like you have a real rich history with your childhood reading experiences. Mm-hmm. Have you found that to be the case for you, that that childhood love of reading, maybe even slightly you know, disruptive or transgressive <laughs> versions of, of reading, has really opened up something for you in your adult life or in your work? Oh, yes. I mean, I I started out uh, by reading comic books. And again, nothing transgressive uh, there in the sense that my parents didn't 
not only did they not say, you need to read this, uh, but they also didn't, um, didn't discourage me or, or kind of redirect me away from anything. So they were perfectly happy for me to be reading X-Men comic books. And that actually, I think most people that I know who really have a wide sort of spectrum of reading and are interested in many things, that's that's how it started. Yeah. And I remember uh, very early on, because I was so Bible taught right. and so anchored in the Bible, I could see the biblical illusions uh, that are taking place with Superman right. or somebody else. Yeah. Um, and so I think that, I think that a lot of people I've found that that's mm-hmm. that that's the the common starting point. Mm-hmm. And it just it kind of primes the pump for you then to be able to more imaginatively engage with people too, right? It grows that empathy muscle as well. I think so. I don't know that it creates uh, empathy. No. I know there are some people who would say that that reading creates a, a sense of empathy or. Uh, deepens empathy. I'm not sure that that's the case, but it does give an expression Mm -hmm. of uh, a definition to empathy. So through reading, I can imagine uh, situations that I ordinarily would never uh, encounter. I've never been addicted, but I can understand what it's like to be an addict. Not not wholly, but you can inhabit a little bit of that life uh, in order Mm -hmm. to see it. Mm -hmm. Uh, In the same way, I mean, the music uh, that I listen to, I'm an old school country music Mm -hmm. guy. And Many, if not most of the songs uh, that are on my playlist are things that I have never personally related to. Mm-hmm. Uh, George Jones singing about a marriage uh, breaking up or about uh, about coming home drunk. I mean, this just never, right. never happened with me, <laughs> yeah. but I can imagine what it would be mm-hmm. like for him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it communicates that to me. So it's a way of people telling their stories and a way of hearing those stories in a safer, mm-hmm. um, I don't know if I would say safer, uh, in a more candid way. But through art, whether it's through books or music or something else, you get a a, a more authentic look sometimes right. where people mm-hmm. aren't protecting themselves or editing things out. And I find that helpful. Right. I mean, because the best fiction is obviously not going to be like heavily narrated and, you know, telling us how to think, right? It's that it's pushing you as a reader into experiencing that narrative. The fiction that does want to come in, Eudora Welty uh, talked about this in terms of the novelist crusading uh, and I, I even noticed this as a kid in a lot of Christian uh, books and a lot yeah. of Christian fiction. You could tell it was, okay, we're trying to tell you that you ought to get saved right. or, uh, you, you know, whatever, whatever yeah. it is. And that, that doesn't tell the story. And I think, you know, the best stories are such a mix of different things, right? Different genres, different emotions, different feelings, and yeah, even the best Christian novelists, whether it's someone like Tolkien or Lewis or whomever, they're really grappling with the darkness too, not just here's what you need to think oh, about yeah. a particular thing. And part of that is the journey of the reader. I love that. This episode is brought to you by The Truce Podcast. I'm sure you've been there. You're at an event, a dinner, a small group, and someone says something like, If you're a Christian, you have to vote Republican. Huh. 
That raises an interesting question. How did evangelicals like me get to the place where we just assumed we'd all vote one way? This season on the Truce Podcast, we're diving deep into the complexity of the 1970s and 80s to understand how evangelicals tied themselves to the Republican Party. It's a story that involves murder, corruption, redemption, and our need to be heard. I'll be talking with celebrated historians like Rick Perlstein, Pulitzer Prize winners Francis Fitzgerald and Jesse Isinger, and some of the best guests I've ever had. Truce is the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture wars in order to explore how we got here and how we can do better. Subscribe to Truce anywhere you get podcasts or listen at trucepodcast.com. Well, um, we have so many questions about your book club. I think it's come up in a few of our conversations recently, as you've just been able to reference how, particularly during the pandemic, that the book club that you're a part of has been really influential. So tell us a little bit about how that came to be and how you've chosen some of those books. It might help some of our listeners think about how they might start their own book club as well. Well, I'm in two book clubs, or one that's ongoing and one that kind of comes and goes. Mm-hmm. And we we met during the pandemic because we could meet outside and and sit far away from each other. And we were reading through T.S. Eliot's uh, Four Quartets at the time. All of us love that. And so we had that time together during the pandemic. But the ongoing book club, we have over Zoom because we're scattered all mm-hmm. over the place. Mm-hmm. And then we'll get together physically every once in a while when we can. But it was really helpful and important for me because it's almost a way to trick yourself into fellowship. Mm. So I'm not the kind of person who likes to, uh, I mean, church, small groups, I just find unbearable <laughs> because it's it's sort of, okay, here you are, commune. Right, ready, uh, go. Which is, yeah, <laughs> yeah. It, which is similar to me as somebody who's had insomnia troubles all my life to someone saying, okay, you need to go to sleep. Right. You, you, you have to get sleep. up in the morning, yeah. go to yeah. sleep. Yeah. I, yeah, I can't do that. And so book club would be a way for all of us mm. to be doing the same thing together, mm-hmm. uh, reading a particular book. But it's really similar to the most successful men's Bible studies and small groups I ever knew yeah. in my church growing up were always related to disaster relief or helping somebody clean up their yard after a hurricane or something like that, where there was an activity that you were all engaged in and you you find fellowship in that. And so that's really what for us, the book club is mostly about praying for each other and supporting each other Mm -hmm. and encouraging each other. I mean, every day we have prayer requests going around. Mm Uh, not all of us are Christians uh, in the book club, yeah. but a lot of us are. And it was a way for me to regularly have fellowship, especially right. during the, the right. pandemic, in ways that weren't related to my job. Right. So I yeah. was having a lot of meetings, but this is different. Yeah. You know. How many people are in it? And tell us a little bit about who started it. Was it was it your Start or someone No, else? I didn't. Okay. I didn't start okay. it. Pete Wayner, who's part of the book club, he started it several years ago. I think there are twelve or thirteen okay. of us in it. We're not all always there, right? But usually, there's 
10 of us uh, at any given time, yeah. somewhere around in there. And do you, how do you pick your, your book club selections? Usually we shift it around. Someone will pick a, a book and then that person will either introduce the book. Here's, here's why I wanted to do that. Uh, sometimes we'll ask the author of the book to join us. Yeah. And we've done that many times. And there was even one instance where we asked an author of a book to join us and he just connected so much with us that he became part of the book. Oh, that's so great. That, that has <laughs> happened before too. That's fantastic. <laughs> you know, I've read an article recently that the author was speaking about different types of reading. And I'd love to hear mm-hmm. the ways in which this either informs your own book choices or even thinking about it in terms of your book club. But she talked about there's there's three different types of kind of reading, she says, for leaders particularly. There's the kind of comfort us reading, the grow us sort of reading, and the disrupt us sort of reading. So, you know, even as you look at your list of best 12 books, you know, how would you find that those three categories fitting in with your reading or the books that you gravitate towards as a club? I think that all three of those categories would be there, but I'm not consciously picking things uh, because of their categories. And uh, again, it's it's almost as though Wendell Berry, uh, one time I was out at uh, his place and kind of fanboying a little bit. <laughs> it would be hard not to. <laughs> Yeah, but I was saying, you know, this book that this particular book that you wrote, this particular place of it, it it changed my life. Mm. And what he said was, and I'll just I think about it all the time. Mm. Isn't it funny how we meet just the right person at just the right time, and we read just the right book mm. at just the right time? Mm-hmm. And I've found that that's true. I do think that there's something in one's soul yeah. that can kind of alert you. Mm-hmm. You really, you should read this, yeah. but in ways that you don't, oh, for you sure. don't know. Yeah, I think I liked those sorts of categories as kind of a retrospective to go, oh yeah, I, I do follow that. But yeah. the idea of systematizing my own reading by those categories would feel, like you said, quite claustrophobic. You know, someone uh, texted me, political consultant texted me the other day and said, um, he was asking me something about my hometown, Lexi. He said, I, I saw on Wikipedia that you're from there. And so I was answering some question and I said, what, why do you ask? And he said, well, I'm kind of embarrassed to admit it, uh-huh. um, but I'm reading John Grisham's Boys from Biloxi. And I said, well, I am too, but why are you embarrassed? He said, oh, I'm so relieved that there are other, that you read lowbrow stuff. They're like, I just, I don't put things into those categories uh, at all. Right, that's a lot of pressure (laughs) to only read highbrow. Or that you only read lowbrow, middlebrow, whatever it is. Read what you want and uh, and let what you want to read Mm. kind of guide you into better and better things things, which is usually what happens is you, you start to read and that it just directs you in different, uh, in different ways, but don't, don't, uh, don't don't be embarrassed by whatever it is you like. I like that. The Christianity Today Book Awards just came out, which is really always Mm -hmm. exciting. I always wait for those every year. As we've been thinking about the value of reading and reading 
practices, there are those lists, right? Like the CT book awards that really can help direct our reading. Um, For your list, particularly your 12 best of 2022, as you called those 12 books, um, maybe just realizing, hey, I'm still thinking about these. Was there one Mm -hmm. maybe that might rise to the top that felt like this is something that's really special that I want to hold on to, or I'd love to give to a multitude of pastors or leaders that I know that feels like something encouraging? You know, I think that all of them spoke uniquely to me in some way or the other, and all of them would be things that I would give to people, but I would give to different people. Yeah. Uh, So, I mean, if somebody, for instance, is asking about uh, wanting to think about imagination and how how imagination uh, ought to shape and form uh, how to read the Bible and how to think through things, then I'll take the little Malcolm Geit uh, book and and give it to him and say, read, read this. It's it's less than 80 pages. And and uh, it just speaks beautifully to that. Or. I have um, uh, uh, the uh, Clarence Jordan uh, book that Plow Publishing uh, put out. Mm-hmm. Uh, I recommended and gave to somebody who, like too many people right now, has lost his church uh, family uh, over division. And I said, just read, read, uh, read Clarence Jordan's experience mm-hmm. as somebody who was a uh, pro-civil rights, uh, pro-racial justice, uh, white Southern Baptist pastor in the Jim Crow era mm. who lost his church and the mm. affection yeah. that you can tell you, the affection he has uh, for even that church that rejected him. Mm. I gave it to that person and said, read this and you might identify yeah. with some of the things that that he say. So it just, it just would depend on what situation somebody's in. Right. I've recommended something before that somebody likes um, and, and they, I know that they like it, then that'll help me to say, oh, you ought to check this out. You might like it too. Yeah. You're helping some of that bookstore serendipity, right? That we've lost. <laughs> yeah. I think that's great. There was a book that I did read out of obligation <laughs> this year. Yeah. Uh and I was really glad I did. And a lot of people have asked, why didn't you, uh, why didn't you include uh, everything sad is untrue right. uh, novel in the list of the best books of 2022? And it's because it was it was certainly one of the best I read in 2022, but it was a 2021 book. Oh, there you go. And the only way I knew about it was I was getting these constant texts from Beth Moore as she was making it through the book. And she said, this book is just unbelievable. You have to read it. Right. And again, kind of like the pediatric neurosurgery book, I looked at the description and thought, well, that's not really uh, the sort of thing that interests me. But she finally said, you need to listen to your mother because she has jokes. Yeah, she's my mother. Yeah, yeah. You need to listen to your mother and read this book. Yeah. And so I, I did. I said, okay, I have to report back to her that I read it and started reading yeah. it. And I thought, wow, this is unbelievable. And the more I went through it, yeah. it, it would just totally pivot uh, yeah. <laughs> on you in the middle of the book. And I found it better and better and better as it went. So she was right. Oh, that's good. I can't wait to read that. It's on my shelf. 
you know, as we think about books and we think about books to help us in leadership, particularly you, you mentioned one of your favorite reads was Nonverts, The Making of X. Christian America, yeah. which has also been on my to be read list. So I'm, I wanted to just pick your brain on it for a little bit. Is that an encouraging book? You know, as we think about folks who have left their churches over the last three years, you know, Barner reports up to a third of Christians are no longer attending church. I'm even reminded my husband preached this Advent season on Isaiah 40 and thinking about that and that Jesus and John 15 is talking about the pruning, right, of God's church. Mm-hmm. And there that some, you know, means that branches are cut off. Other times it's it's a pruning um, at, to, mm-hmm. to create a healthier church. So given some of these contextual things, uh, this sense of loss, whether chosen or not, you know, that the Christian church in America particularly is experiencing, how does the book Nonverts kind of interact with our current moment in time? Well, I agree with uh, that that pruding is happening. Mm-hmm. I don't know that I would say that that's what's happening with this. Right. Because uh, in some cases it is, but in a lot of cases, what I see happening is closer to uh, what's taking place in John 9 right. uh, rather than John 15, in which the religious leaders are sort of pushing the the blind man and his family outside of the community. And the whole point of it is they're the ones who are blind. Right. And I think that with a lot of situations where we're seeing people who start to conclude, uh, well, the, the, the church is itself fraudulent right. uh, or, or not uh, telling the truth, that often is is what's happening. Mm-hmm. When you asked if Nonverts is an encouraging book, I would <laughs> say yes, uh-huh. but in the sense that it uh, breaks through some gaslighting right. and, and says, I'm really telling you the truth. And he uses this really helpful analogy. He said, it's the difference between uh, saying, Uh, This is somebody that I'm not married to, Mm -hmm. one of the billions of people (laughs) that I'm not married to, as opposed to this is an ex-spouse. Very different Mm -hmm. relationship Mm -hmm. with with those Mm -hmm. two things. And the nonverts he's showing, it's not just that sometimes there's more of a more of an intensity. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, and, and you could see that even with people who convert from one. Uh, faith or one denomination uh, to the other. I, I know in churches I've served, the people who were the most uh, rigidly anti-Catholic were former Catholics. And right. my Catholic friends tell me the same thing is true in reverse. Mm-hmm. And and so that there's the part of that is there, but it's also just the way that a person thinks mm. is shaped and formed by that religious background even if they now reject it. So it's really helpful to kind of look around sociologically and see what's happening. Right. And give you some good terms to be able to at least be able to articulate what's going on in one's particular context based on some of that data. Yeah. 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 That's great. And he uses the category, I, I kind of laughed because I didn't expect this mm-hmm. from this British writer to to know Jeannie C. Riley's uh, song, Harper Valley PTA. Yeah. Uh, but he did, and he, he calls it the Harper Valley effect, mm. uh, which, of course, in that song, you have a, a single mother who's being judged by the community at the PTA meeting. And she goes through and just starts saying uh, all of the things that are going on with those people. 
and, and how hypocritical it is. And he says there's a Harper Valley effect mm. where when you put together dogmatic right. moralizing with uh, moral chaos in the same person or group, that repels people uh, more than than anything. And I think that's that's obviously what what we've been seeing in mm. recent years. Mm. Yeah, that's really good. What I loved most of all about Israel and why I became a Zionist was because Zionism was a rejection of victimhood. A few weeks ago on CT's The Bulletin, we launched Promised Land, a new podcast about Israel and Palestine in a post-October 7th world. 6.30 a.m., we're, we're in, in, in our synagogue praying and sirens go off and they're, and they're going on. Based on interviews and conversations captured on the ground in Israel last November, it's an exploration of the spiritual, political, and historical roots of the conflict. When there's a weak Israel, every Jew in the world is weak. And why should uh, a Russian Jew who has nothing to do with this land come, come here? Why? Well, I mean, if you want, you can give them Texas. You love them so much. I am alive because I wasn't, I, I didn't come home. But all my friends that were here were murdered, here, here, over there. This week, Promised Land moves to its own feed. You'll find links in the show notes. So if you haven't heard it yet, you can go catch up and catch the new episodes as they come all in one place. Another book that I just wanted to spend a few minutes on is The Medieval Mind of C.S. Lewis. I'd love to mm -hmm. think a bit about that book by Jason Baxter, because I think it really, what I, what I appreciate about the ideas behind it, I haven't read it yet, so full disclosure, is, you know, that it's helping us to kind of reimagine again something more enchanted, if we're going to use something, you know, that Charles Taylor would say. Jessica Hooten Wilson mm -hmm. endorsed the book, and she talks about Lewis having a forgotten way of seeing. Mm -hmm. So I wonder if there's something in this book that you would be able to describe as what is that forgotten way of seeing that Lewis kind of helps us see again? And can we remember that again? You know, that that imaginative, yeah. enchanted world that we, we do get in the, more of the medieval period. What I liked about this book is there's a kind of dress-up medievalism uh, yeah. that, that tends to romanticize uh -huh. uh, the, the Middle Ages in the same way that, that other people romanticize other eras. Uh, and the book doesn't do that. What, what it's doing is coming in and saying, if you're going to understand Lewis, mm -hmm. then you have to understand how he's being shaped and formed by, uh, specifically by medieval literature. Yeah. He was a classics professor. He was he was teaching the, the great works of literature and was shaped and formed by them in all of these uh, different ways, in ways that if you, if you see it, uh, you, you can see the influence of the ancient world. I mean, think of the right. professor in The Last Battle. This is all in Plato. You can see Plato all through Chronicles of Narnia and other places. But you also see Dante and you see uh, these other influences. And what the book points out is a lot of times, and Charles Taylor, as you mentioned, mm -hmm. points this out too. A lot of times the, the most... Um, the, the deepest ways that we've secularized mm -hmm. are things that we don't see at all because we just don't recognize the 
the categories we're using, or uh, more importantly, I think the metaphors uh, that we're using. Mm-hmm. So if we go back to Wendell Berry, he had a book, um, Life is a Miracle, mm-hmm. where he he argues one of the biggest problems we have is the metaphor that we use of people as machines. For sure, yeah. So uh, you might say, I, I want to find out what makes her tick <laughs> or... He's really processing that, <laughs> right, you know, right. th- those sorts of uh, metaphors. They change the way that you see things yeah. because that's how we that's how we perceive things is through metaphor. And so this book comes in and says that kind of quantified, mes- mechanized sort of view of the universe. That's what is being challenged right. in in Lewis's more medieval way of, of seeing things in which the universe around us is alive uh, in, in one very real sense. And so it makes better sense of uh, if, if one, uh, for instance, looks at uh, the space uh, trilogy that, that Lewis is writing and that, that view of some people would say, well, it's a, it's it's not really up to date with scientific understanding of the universe. Lewis knew that even then. Right. That wasn't right. the point he was making. Right. Uh, or to say, well, I mean, I just I just don't know about all the talking animals in <laughs> uh, in Chronicles of Narnia. Yeah. He's doing something really specific with that. Yeah. And a lot of that is influenced by the way he's seeing the world mm-hmm. and that's shaped by what he was reading. Mm-hmm. Is there something for us to glean from that book or even as we think further past it, not just about Lewis and his fiction, but, you know, is there a new way of seeing or a different way of seeing that we're invited into, do you think, through his works? Yeah, I think the uh, Baxter uses this analogy. I'm, I'm probably getting it wrong, but he talks about this analogy. We tend to think in terms of laws of gravity mm-hmm. in really impersonal sorts of ways where what Lewis is picking up from the medieval writers is a, a metaphor more of uh, rather than there's a law that causes the apple to fall to the ground mm-hmm. when it falls from the tree, which of course is true, right. but there's a different metaphor of a, a kind of longing of the apple for the ground, which is also true mm-hmm. in, a, in a different way. Uh, so I think the main thing is kind of noticing. I mean, yeah. I remember after Life is a Miracle, I just started noticing all the ways that I would uh, slip into that sort of machine talk. Um, and then that would change the way that I would I would see people. I'd love to just chat forever about books, but I wanted just to end on a little fun note for like a quick fire answer round before we get there though. I would love to hear, there was a few questions in your email about, hey, you don't have any books by women. So (laughs) I'm a woman, I'm not offended, but I would love to hear, yeah, what would be your favorite book by a woman that you've read recently? Oh, recently. I mean, uh, Marilyn Robinson is a huge uh, influence on me and her, uh, it's not a book, but I think it's probably going to be one Mm -hmm. uh, eventually. She has an article in uh, the New York Review of Books uh, this month called A Theology of the Present Moment. And in in some ways, actually, she's addressing what we were just talking about, Mm -hmm. where she's saying, you know, for a long time, there was this idea of science and religion being odds with one another. Yeah. But 
now we're starting to realize mm-hmm. uh, the most scientifically minded people are knowing how much mystery there is to the universe. And so yeah. she kind of teaches a very secular audience about mm-hmm. some insights from Jonathan Edwards on continuous creation and those sorts of things. Fantastic yes. article. And I, I think it'll probably be a book. Well, she does have a bit on that, I think, in her most recent essay collection as well. So that's something people yeah. can pick up until that one gets turned around into a new book. Okay. So quickly, mm-hmm. what was the best book you read as a child or best comic book, I suppose? The one that stuck with you. Chris Claremont's uh, run on uh, X-Men mm-hmm. was really important to me. I mean, I read all kinds of comic books, but that was one that I would wait for uh, every month yeah. because I didn't know what was going uh, to happen. One of those page and it, turners. it stands out. Oh, that's good. Yeah. That's good. Um, and then, of course, Chronicles of Narnia was really, really important uh, for me. Mm-hmm. Tolkien, too. Yeah. But but especially Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe just really changed the way I saw everything, oh. and I think, for the rest of my life. What's the best book that stuck with you that you've read recently? I mean, I have had a lot of conversations about Tim Keller's book on forgiveness Mm -hmm. because a lot of people, when Tim and I did the podcast here on the show, uh, a lot of people said, well, they went and picked up the book. Yeah, yeah. And uh, one person said to me, uh, I felt really convicted and not at all judged. That's beautiful. Which I thought was a really successful uh, a, a way of, of judging the success of the book. And so that's that that was the goal. And so I've had a lot of kind of follow-up mm-hmm. conversations about that book because we're all, we all have the need to be forgiven and yes. to forgive. And we all find it hard to do both. And it's so practical too, that book with really yeah. helpful ways forward about what that looks like and how to do it. Best book of poetry. I don't know what I would say is the best book For of poetry <laughs> writ large, right. uh, but I would say that um, Malcolm Geit, who I referenced, his poetry in recent years has been important for me, especially one called uh, The Christian's Plummet uh-huh. um, that's about uh, the, the sign of Jonah. Uh-huh. Uh, really, really uh, important for me. There's a, uh, there's a, Wendell Berry poem that became really important to me every day at a particular time Mm. called Don't Be Ashamed. Mm. Um, And that one was really important to me. But somebody whose poetry I go to a lot uh, all the time is a a poet by the name of David White, Mm -hmm. who's actually a a former marine biologist, which you don't ordinarily see a lot of marine biologist poets. Uh, But his work is, is just really it really speaks to me. That's great. And Malcolm Gates going to be on the podcast in about a month's time. So we'll look forward yeah, to that, I'm looking forward that dialogue to as well. What is one of the best books that you've enjoyed reading with your wife or with your children or all together? Family read aloud. One of the things that when the kids were little mm-hmm. that we read so often that it still just sort of Pepper's conversation is Maurice Syndex, Where the Wild Things Are. Yeah, yeah. Just because, especially, I mean, I don't know, I don't have any daughters, but I have five sons. Uh, So I don't know if there's anything particularly gendered about this, Mm -hmm. but I do know that little boys love that book. Uh, And (laughs) I've got all kinds of theories as to why that is. But that book was just read so often Mm -hmm. that 
we we have it memorized. Yeah. And it, it still comes up even though they're older. Do you have a favorite Christmas book? Like, you know, bring out and read it every Christmas? No, I don't think I do. Okay. Uh, as a matter of fact, I, I don't think I do. Okay. Yeah. Well, you can all send your suggestions for next year for Russell's Christmas reading list. Yeah. What book are you most excited to dig into over the holidays? That this Maybe it's a piece of comfort reading or something you've been putting off and it can't wait to open up. I just started that Grisham uh, Boys from Biloxi yeah. uh, book, which I'm maybe 10% to 15% into, but a lot of the uh, beginning is sort of historical foundations of my hometown. So I'm I'm enjoying That's that. That's great. I'm not normally a John Grisham genre. The genre that he does just is not normally anything that I read, but because he's coming at it from that from your uh, vantage point, yeah. that means I have to. Yes. And a lot of times when I read books that are set in my hometown, there are times when I'm infuriated right. because I'm like, this is somebody who doesn't understand the Mississippi Gulf Coast, has no business writing about it. <laughs> but there are other times, well, this is somebody who actually is paying attention and knows what's going on. Yes. Well, I have a, the Louise Penny newest novel waiting for me for, mm. for next week. So she's a Canadian mystery writer. And so that feels like a fun comfort read for me. What's the name of that? It's a World of Curiosities. It's the 18th book in the series. So yes, Inspector oh, Gamache, oh, he's, okay. they've now made a Netflix special from it, but he's one of these strong jawed, thoughtful poetry reading homicide detectives. So it's a, it's a lovely Ooh. combination. <laughs> you know what, uh, in, in kind of in that genre mm-hmm. that I really, uh, that, or normally I can't listen to audio books unless they're biographies. Yeah because my attention goes in and out and I have to have something where you, you don't have to follow something right. in order yeah. to come back into it. But the exception to that was, um, oh, I can't even remember the author, but there was this trilogy about a detective. Uh, the, the earth is about to be destroyed by an asteroid, the last policeman. Okay. Uh, and he's a police detective who has to solve a murder uh-huh. knowing that the earth is going to be destroyed in a couple months time. Yeah. And it was really fun to listen to by audiobook. Yeah, that's great. There are a few good audiobooks for sure, but I share your 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 hesitancy for sure. Well, thank you, Russell. It's been so fun to kind of dive into that newsletter. You can remember, you can get Russell's newsletter at russellmore.com slash subscribe. We appreciate all of your good reading and directing us to so many good books that will really, I hope, help us open up towards one another, right, as we move about into a new year. And I would just say to listeners, if you find something you're reading that uh, you think uh, you think I'd like, uh, send along the recommendation. A lot of times I find things that way. Perfect. Thanks for listening. Links are always in the show notes for resources mentioned in this episode, including a link about how you can have a trial membership to Christianity Today. Be sure to subscribe to the program, send an episode along to a friend who might benefit from it, and leave us a review when you can. It helps other people to find the show wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Russell Moore, and this is The Russell Moore Show from Christianity Today. The Russell Moore Show is a production of Christianity Today. Executive producers are Eric Petrick, Russell Moore, and Mike Cosper. 
hosted by Russell Moore, produced by Ashley Hales, associate producers Abby Perry and Azurae Phelps, CT administration provided by Christine Kolb, social media by Kate Lucky, director of operations for CT Media is Matt Stevens, production assistance provided by Core Media, audio engineer is Kevin Duthu, coordinator is Beth Grabencourt, video producer is John Rowland. The theme song for The Russell Moore Show is Dusty Delta Day by Lennon Hutton. 